Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 115, hold in lieu of a procedure turn and our favorite aviation museums coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast tonight. I am joined by my favorite aviation advocates, and we have a special episode, which is a continuation of our discussion from the last episode. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce everybody this evening and have everybody say hello. And uh, from the uh, sunny northeast right now, I think it's sunny in the northeast <laughs> yeah. right now, and uh, in the maple-producing county of, yes, we, uh, oh gosh, I don't even know what county you're in, uh, is you know, uh, Rick Felty. <laughs> hello, hello. Um, so I wasn't here last time. Uh, glad to be here this time. And I'll try to, I'll try to kick it up a notch. And if you don't know the inside joke, we have uh, Rick Felty who's, oh, yeah. who's actually producing the yep. uh, the maple. Yeah, we so. have a we have a sugar maple in the yard, and the community farm's tapping it, and we're getting the benefits of that, and it's been fun. Yeah. So yeah, and it has been warm, which is the maple is, the sap is flowing. <laughs> and uh, also joining us is Russ Rosleski, and he's the one that uh, came up with the idea of the stuck. Maple Avcast. That's right. A new podcast uh, coming at you soon, I believe. <laughs> and that's uh, thanks uh, for joining us, Russ. And also joining us is Larry. Larry Overstreet, welcome. Welcome from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, guys. And also Paul Greco. Paul, welcome. I saw you in person today. Yes, we did. I'll just be the sap for today. <laughs> Ooh, and Tom Frick. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> and but, Tom um, Frick, welcome. I'll just say hello. I can't touch that one. Ooh, from, <laughs> for the sugarcane syrup capital of the world, Florida, welcome. We uh, also appreciate you, the listener, uh, this evening, and thanks so much for your feedback. By the way, you can go out to stuckmikeavcast.com and comment on the show notes and also follow along on the show notes. As a matter of fact, in this episode, we're going to do a couple uh, fairly technical things and uh, a discussion. Uh, so if you are not driving, please, if pull over if you are, uh, go out to the show notes and click on some of the examples we're going to give. We also are going to have a blog post associated with this, and we're going to do our best to uh, discuss some of the, the specifics of this. Russ is actually going to be putting together a blog post on the specifics of what we're going to talk about here, but, uh, but we'll keep that for later. We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but before we get uh, started with our main discussion, I would like to start with some announcements. Let's do the pre-flight. Announcements. Uh, let's see. Russ, I think you had an announcement. Yes, I absolutely do, Carl. Uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about one of my uh, students, one of my private pilot students, had a uh, some engine problems and the exhaust was um, falling off the airplane practically on one of his solo flights, and he landed successfully, and he had all the maintenance done, of course. But uh, that took him down for a little while, but I'm proud to announce that this past Sunday afternoon, he did pass his private pilot checkride, so congratulations, Michael, and great job. Good job, Michael. Great yeah. job, Michael. That's terrific. 
any other announcements uh, that we have? I think uh, that might be it as far as the announcements. Uh, actually, we have uh, some interesting things that have been happening lately here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. Uh, we've been trying to get out and visit. And one of the things that I'm going to try to start doing more of is tweeting out where we are and what we're doing. Uh, some even the guests here that or the co-hosts here, I should say, that uh, are out at aviation events. We're going to start to do a little bit more tweeting. So make sure you follow us on Twitter at StuckMikeAvCast or go to StuckMikeAvCast.com. Follow us on Facebook, and we're going to start uh, putting pictures out there of places that we visit. Of course, my personal Facebook page, I try to put as many posts as possible on there. One of the places that I did visit recently uh, was... Uh, well, it was the Sunset Bar and Grill, and then a few days later, I visited the Sunset Pub and Grill in two totally opposite places on the on this planet. The one, of course, is the Sunset Bar and Grill, the famous bar and grill at St. Martin Maho Beach, and got some really cool photographs of uh, a big 747 KLM landing there. So uh, I'll have that out there on the website and also on the Facebook page so you can take a look at it. But Paul Greco and I, we uh, we went to another one called the Sunset Pub and Grill. And Paul, I'm not sure if you've been to the one in St. Martin, but how does it compare to that one? Well, I haven't quite been to the one in St. Martin yet, but uh, I would imagine that one is slightly more fun than the one in Lincoln Park. Although... Well, we had a good time today. Uh, the food's really good. Uh, it's it's on Lincoln Park Airport, which is a really small 2,000-foot strip in uh, northwestern New Jersey. It's a great little airport. Um, it's it's the way airports used to be, you know, 30, 40 years ago. That's the way I think of it anyway. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's more fun in the summer when you can go outside and hang out. Um, they have outdoor seating, and you can you can rate the the people landing, and I always think that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is a blast, especially while you're sitting there having a beer, because your comments oh, yeah. get interesting after having oh, a few. Oh yeah, <laughs> you you might yell that was only a six. But, <laughs> <laughs> but gosh, you know we we uh, again we're going to be tweeting out some of those places that we are visiting, and uh, hopefully we'll get some other folks to come visit with us while we're we're at those places. This was kind of a, a last uh, minute impromptu visit. It was uh, three different airline pilots, and guess what we talked about? Airplanes and aviation. It was shocking. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's funny after all these years, you still talk about aviation and flying so much. And uh, of course, the 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 one airline pods, all he talked about is four hundred one k and that kind of stuff. Gosh, <laughs> that's all those those major airline pilots do. I'm just kidding, by the way, if you're listening right now to this, Scott. Uh, but <laughs> we we had a, a terrific time, and also uh, we have terrific time anywhere we go. And I love it when uh, some of our listeners uh, see some of our products or uh, t-shirts or even uh, some of the little. Um, uh, magnets that we've had in the past and send us pictures. Someone did that uh, a couple days ago, and I really appreciate that. Now entering cruise flight. Let's move on to our main topic this evening. Remember in the last episode, uh, we talked a little bit about segments of the approach, and uh, we talked about procedure turns, and uh, we said, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit more about procedure turns, and specifically uh, hold in lieu of procedure turn and uh, but before we do that, we have to talk about what a procedure turn is. Uh, if you remember, uh, a procedure turn is a maneuver prescribed to perform a course reversal to establish the aircraft inbound on an intermediate or final approach course. The procedure turn or hold in lieu of procedure turn 
is a required maneuver when it's depicted on the approach tart. However, the procedure turn or hold in lieu of the procedure turn is not permitted when there's like that symbol that says no procedure turn uh, on or on the initial segment or when you're being radar vectored to the final approach course. And of course, when you're uh, conducting a, uh, a uh, timed approach to the holding fix. So now, we also want to discuss the altitudes. There's an altitude prescribed for the procedure turn, and it's the minimum altitude in aircraft until the aircraft, excuse me, is established on the inbound course. So, there, this is quite interesting. We have uh, a hold in lieu of the procedure turn and a procedure turn. And the what I want to do is talk about this through some examples. Again, if you're driving in your car, you know, pull over or wait till you get home. We're going to talk about uh, some holds in lieu of procedure turn. The first one is going to actually be at uh, Pocatello. So, Russ, talk a little bit about the one at Pocatello or add whatever you like as far as the procedure turn and hold in lieu of procedure turn. Yeah, well, the, our first example, like you said, is a Pocatello, Idaho. It's uh, Papa India Hotel is the identifier. It's a VO Runway 3 approach, and it, it is it is a standard procedure turn, not the hold and loop. We'll get into that next. But the, the question has been raised a few times, and I know it's it's a topic in airline interviews and in uh, other, other places, is when can you start descending to this procedure turn altitude? If you picture your most basic of, uh, of procedure turns, you'll have you might have a final approach fix intercept altitude, and you might have something that's higher than that depicted on the chart. That higher altitude is, is your procedure turn altitude until you're established inbound. Well, if you cross this pr- the procedure turn fix at some higher altitude, when can you start descending to the uh, procedure turn altitude? And the answer is as soon as you cross that fix, there is some uh, misunderstanding that you have to wait until you're inbound before you can start any descent, which is not only incorrect, it, it could potentially be dangerous by keeping you too long, too high, and making you have to really drop like a rock to get down to the runway. So this example at Pocatello, Idaho, has a procedure turn altitude of 7,200 feet. So once we cross the VOR, that's when we can descend to that 7,200 feet. Uh, like Carl said, if, you know, if you're trying to build this in your mind and follow along in the car, maybe wait till you get home or whatever. But uh, the Pocatello procedure also has another interesting situation that you don't necessarily see that often. And it is a minimum altitude crossing the VOR. In this case, it's a 7,800 feet. So the requirement here due to obstacles, and if you look at the approach chart, you can figure out where the, the high obstacles are, are they have to be at least 7,800 until crossing that VOR then, as you're outbound on that procedure turn, you can begin your descent down to 7,200. Once you t- turn back around and you're established inbound, that's where you go down to your final approach fix altitude. But if you stay too high too long, like I said, that might uh, cause you to have a little bit steeper descent than, than you'd like coming uh, into the final approach fix or into the runway if it's a no-faff procedure. So, Russ, uh, just a, a quick question there. Uh, when we were discussing this, we we crossing this fix at 7,800 feet, and then we were talking about uh, you could go outbound to 7,200 feet. Uh, there's some terms that we have, and uh, there's the procedure turn fix altitude, which is that 7,800 feet that we were talking about, uh, which we have to cross. But there's also the procedure turn completion altitude. Uh, this actually, uh, this procedure turn fixed altitude you talked about, you cross at that 7,800 feet, 
and then you can descend to the next altitude you, you discussed, and that next altitude is called the procedure turn completion altitude, which if you look at your terminal procedures manual, you'll see that described in the front. So I just thought I'd quick add that there. So there's a procedure turn fix altitude and the procedure turn completion altitude. Those are two different things, two different terms that we have. So like you said, I think a lot of people do get confused that they have to wait until they're turning inbound to actually descend, and that's not true. No, absolutely not. It, if you have your standard procedure turn and you might you know, remain within 10 nautical miles, that gives you distance to descend down to that procedure turn completion altitude, and you may need to start that descent as soon as you cross the procedure turn fix to give yourself enough time to get down, depending on, of course, on how high you are at the fix. But you can use that, that almost 10 nautical miles out and 10 nautical miles back for a lot of descent if you need it. And and what's interesting is that something that's that's changing, and Russ, uh, you can uh, add to this, is that you know some procedure turns they contain that note that says maintain this altitude at or above until established outbound for the procedure turn, and the newer ones are just depicting the at or above altitude, like you're like we're showing here on the procedure turn with no chart notes uh, at all. So it's just showing that altitude at or above, and then the next altitude at or above being that procedure turn completion altitude. Yeah, and that's Carl, absolutely correct. Uh, guys, you're, you're, when you're saying that, you're talking about the uh, altitude numbers that have the line underneath them for you know, people who are trying to imagine this in their heads uh, as they drive, right? right? Yeah, that's a good point, Larry. Yeah, We're talking about uh, altitudes that have the line underneath it, uh, which is that minimum segment altitude. That's correct. Right, right. Okay, so then they, they do this. They, they have this altitude, which they have to hold, uh, outbound to say we just talked about it was 7200 in this example so they go out and do this procedure turn and then they come back inbound but then there's this other altitude uh, and it's depicted on this chart here so kind of walk us through that a little bit there okay so the, on this on this example the the next altitude we went down to the 7200 and the next altitude is 5600 that's our final approach fix intercept altitude and so now the next question, Carl, is when can you descend from 7,200 to 5,600? Okay, I'm glad so we you went asked. down. <laughs> yeah, we went, we went down to 7,200. We turned back inbound. At some point, if we're doing a, the normal procedure, turn to 45 degree turn out and turn around and come back in, we have to start descending to 5,600. The answer is when you're established on that uh, inbound procedure turn course. In this case, uh, for anybody looking at the chart, it's 055 degrees. So when you're established on that, then you can proceed down to 5600. However, I haven't read a good, a, a good definition of established on final, so I think everybody's pretty much made up their own. Would you agree with that, Carl? I, I would think so. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, yeah. And then, yeah. My, my kind of rule of thumb is if you're 10, within 10. Half, uh, half scale deflection and pointed the correct way, so you're not still crossing it, so you're pointed you know, on that heading and you're within about half scale, you're, uh, you're established and you can begin a descent. But that's not, I mean, that, that's me speaking from experience, not from, not from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, a lot of people use that term 10, 10 and cleared. If, if you, you see the needle moving, then you can start on down. So say in our case, it's 7,200 and we start inbound and then the needle starts moving in, we start intercepting. That's when we can actually start down to that next altitude, which we talked about is 5,600 feet in our case here. 
So that's interesting how, how we go from that 7,200 to 5,600. We do the procedure turn. We're established inbound on that in the procedure turn. So what – and again, remember, why are we doing this? We don't want to bump into anything on the ground. And you're thinking, well, why – and Russ, you can answer this question. Why is it that we can go down to that 5,600 but that 7,200 is – out here at 10 nautical miles. Why, why the big difference in altitude there? Well, it's all dependent mostly on local terrain, of course. Uh, as you're maneuvering for that procedure turn, you're covering a lot of ground. Okay, there's a large area that, that right. you're concerned with for obstacles. And, of course, if you're flying it in a smaller, lighter aircraft, like a 172 for training, you're not really covering that much ground. But if you're covering it in, uh, you, know, you know, a jet or something like that or a much faster airplane, you're you, you're using up maybe every bit of that 10 nautical miles, so there's a lot of real estate you're covering. And, and once, all, I was going to say, all of this information is, com, is compiled and in the TERPs, right? And that's where someone can go back and find much of this information in the terminal procedures manuals, if, uh, if yeah, they want it, to. Yeah, <laughs> of course, it is all in there. But, uh, <laughs> if they really want to do that. <laughs> you've got to be pretty motivated <laughs> to read that. And, and uh, remember, that's what, what defines all this, is the TERPs. Right. Okay. Terminal procedures, which which is something you know quite a few things about. Um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so when, once, you, once you get established back on final, then you're in a much smaller contained area. And that's why, all, you know, the, the large mountains on the sides of you don't matter so much anymore because you got your course nailed down. And that's why you can get down, in this case, to that 5,600 foot altitude. Interesting. And, and this is something that I think is, is really important. What you said is that a lot of people don't know when to head down and if they're going to go down too early or too late. And this is something you need to have in your mind before you go out and fly. So having your charts out and flying through this is very important. And also, I just want to add this to this discussion, is please pull this chart out with your flight instructor and go over this with an instructor and discuss when you, can you start down. If you're going to fly into a new airport, then go out and just, just actually fly it and chair fly the whole approach. I think that's extremely important when you're flying into someplace new. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, like we do at the airlines, there's some, there are certain airports where we actually have to go in for training to actually fly into a specific airport because they are so complex. I know uh, Russ and I, uh, offline, we were talking about Medellin uh, down in uh, Colombia, and we are having a very interesting discussion about that, how it's, it's much different than, than the Terps and they use pans ops down there. But uh, that also can be a very tricky airport to get into if you don't understand when to descend and how to descend. Uh, yeah, the best time to brief these approaches, if it's confusing, is on the ground before you take off. Yes, exactly. So now, Russ, we've talked about the procedure turn, um, and I'd like to move on to the hold in lieu of procedure turn. I think on the you had another example here, which was uh, is that uh, where is that anyway? Jocelyn Field and is that uh, Idaho Falls? No, no, wait. where is that? Twin Falls, Idaho. It's the ILS to two six. Yeah, Twin Falls, Idaho. Yeah, that has actually a, a hold in lieu of procedure turn there, and. Uh, there's interestingly enough this this holding pattern of of in lieu of procedure turn is is another way for to have a course reversal and uh, it's also normally established over an intermediate fix or a final approach fix and there's certain altitudes we must maintain 
within that hold in lieu of procedure turns. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if you're following along in the show notes, you just have to click on the ILS to runway 26. Uh, this is one where uh, we're actually going to go outbound the holding pattern altitude 6,000, but we have uh, another altitude that's kind of interesting, and when can we start down? So we're going to use this hold in lieu of procedure turn for an ILS 26. So if we're at 6,000 feet, when can we start down? So Russ, explain the, a little bit of this to us here and kind of walk us through this this procedure. This is a little bit of an unusual situation. Most of the time when you have these hold in lieu of procedure turns, it if it is at the final approach, it'll be established at the same altitude as your, your glide slope intercept or your FAF altitude, depending on the procedure. But in this case, presumably due to uh, terrain, the, the hold in lieu of procedure turn altitude is just a little bit higher than that final approach fix. So it's actually at 6,000 you're expected to perform your your holding procedures uh, to get turned around. Now, we haven't talked about this yet, but the whole purpose of the hold in lieu of the procedure turn is just like a procedure turn to get you turned around. But you generally use a standard holding pattern entry, and once you're turned around, then you don't need to fly around the holding pattern anymore. You just come on inbound once you're established on the final approach course. In this example, you will fly that holding pattern entry at 6,000, but then once you are established and finally you can come well, all the way down to only 5,900. So it's certainly not a, not a huge difference, but that does set you up for, in this case, it's an ILS, so that'll set you up for a proper glide slope intercept at the, uh, it's actually at an outer marker there. But uh, a little bit of an unusual situation, but it's, it's a good example. So this altitude prescribed in the procedure turn is the out, minimum altitude to do that procedure turn outbound. Then inbound, you have another altitude, like you said, 5,900. Uh, and and to, let's talk a little bit more about these procedure turns or these racetrack patterns. Uh, they should be conducted on the maneuvering side. Uh, and the reason the should is in there is because that's where the majority of the protected airspace is. And, uh, you know, if if the and, – and this, by the way, is in – uh, in Chapter 4 of the Instrument Procedures Guide, they talk about uh, if the entry, say you're uh, coming into the entry and it's a parallel entry and you're outbound, they actually, interestingly enough, what recommend uh, if you are not on the uh, maneuvering side of the procedure turn is to actually correct to intercept the outbound course to remain within protected airspace, which is kind of interesting because when we're taught holds, Almost all the time, they tell us to just say parallel and then come back in and, and re-enter. This is a this is a should, uh, but uh, you deal. Just remember, you still have protected airspace on both sides. Uh, it's just one of those things that's in in that manual because a lot of people uh, say that you cannot uh, start descending, but that's a should right there. So uh, make sure you look at that and and make sure you stay within the protected airspace, of course, by not uh, entering that that procedure turn incorrectly or overshooting to too far because you need to know where you're going to head and what heading you're going to go to. Uh, so make sure you do that. Also, uh, the, the turns are, are exactly as depicted. And you just mentioned something that's interesting. When you do the outbound turn, Russ, you actually are expected on the inbound turn, what are you expected to do when you come back inbound? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, if you're, if you're, <laughs> well, if you're outbound on that on that hold, and you come back in down. Do you keep holding, or what do you do? You're actually you don't keep holding. You actually oh no no re-enter yeah. right yeah. What once you're once you're established 
on the inbound course, uh, given, like we talked about a few minutes ago, whatever definition you like, I suppose, or might be required by your company, uh, once you're established on an inbound course, then you can proceed on with the approach. There's no need to fly around the holding pattern unless, of course, either ATC requires it for some reason, or you still need to lose altitude. Right. These right. these halt these procedure turns, you know, a procedure turn has a set distance. You know, the normal procedure in ten miles, you got to lose all your altitude. But a holding pattern in lieu of a procedure turn, if you need to keep losing some altitude, just keep in the hold. Obviously, making proper radio calls and such is necessary. Right. But yeah, that's it. Well, and I was trying to lead you down the road there. I was kind of hinting, hoping there, yeah. but, but didn't didn't work as well. But I, one of the things that I, I want to stress here, though, is that if you do need to lose altitude in the hold, you need to tell air traffic control because air traffic control is expecting you to do the one turn in the hold, come back, intercept inbound, and complete the approach. If you do need more turns in the hold. You need to coordinate that with air traffic control. I guess that, that's the, the point I was trying to, to make there, to hint at there. But that's yeah, that's something you can't just sit there in the hold uh, and go round and round and round. They're expecting you to complete the actual the procedure turn and then the actual uh, fi- the final approach and also the complete the approach or the missed approach after that. Uh, so it, it's very important to know that if you're in the hold, you just do one turn, you come inbound, you complete the approach. That's what you're going to do there. If you can't do it, then you ask air traffic control. So uh, it's interesting that uh, and some of these other examples that we have here, we have a couple other links there, and I we can go over some of those, but I really want to get to one more, Russ, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, there's the one that, uh, since we probably won't have time to go through all the examples, and there's a bunch of examples in the show notes, and by the way, Russ is going to be writing a, a blog post about this. I want to get to the one um, where we talk about the ILS. We were discussing this before, the ILS in Asheville to runway three five. So if we can talk a little bit about that is um it's an also a hold in lieu of procedure turn. And this is an Asheville really pretty place, wonderful place to fly into. Um but what's interesting is it has a feeder route and we discussed a little bit about that in, in initial fitch initial approach fix. And I think this is how we kind of discussed this last time or how this came up. Uh, talking about intermediate fixes, et cetera, and when you can start down. So, Russ, if you have that up, if we were coming over this Sugarloaf, I'll describe the beginning of this approach. Sugarloaf Mountain is a VOR, and uh, and they start on the feeder route to the hold in lieu of procedure turn at 60 to 100 feet, as is depicted. What do they do next, and when can they go down? Well, it's just like the other situations we talked about. You you have a 6,200-foot feeder altitude and and a 5200 foot uh, hold in lieu of procedure turn altitude and so you can start down once you cross that uh, procedure turn fix in this case it's the broad river ndb once you cross that fix then you're permitted to start your descent down to that 5200 for the uh, the holding pattern there as you're turning outbound, and, and this, you know, if you're using one of your standard uh, three holding entries, this would be a uh, parallel entry. So once you cross that that fix and start on down and turn outbound for your parallel entry, uh, you can go all the way down to 5200 as you're getting yourself turned around and back inbound to the to the fix. This is a really cool example, like we were talking about before, where this would actually be a parallel entry in this case, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, it, that it would be given the uh, the angle it's coming at. 
So, yeah. so most most people when they when we ask them uh, what altitude can you descend to, and in this it shows you that procedure turn completion altitude of fifty two hundred feet. Um, I'm normally people at, tell me that you cannot descend to fifty two hundred feet until you are turned inbound. That's that's not correct, is it? No, it's not correct, and and I hope that uh, hopefully we're helping educate uh, some folks who who might have thought that because that, that's absolutely not the case. And in fact, like we talked about a little bit ago, if if you do stay artificially high, you might have a problem making the descent to the next fix. So you want to you know you want to evaluate obviously aircraft performance, but uh, use the lower altitude as you need it. Interesting. So, so to complete this approach and so to complete this this topic, let, walk us through the the remainder of this. Now we're we're outbound, and we're descending to fifty two hundred feet, and now we've turned inbound. Now, what do we do? Okay, we're already at fifty two hundred feet, so we're we're going to stay there as we uh, get lined up on our. Uh, so it is actually the final approach course in this case. We're going to cross that Broad River NDB, and then we can immediately begin a descent down to 4,000, which is our final approach fix altitude. Uh, we don't want to start that before the Broad River NDB because that's where we're still required to be at that 5,200 feet. But immediately upon crossing it, we can descend to our 4,000 feet for glide slope intercept, and that, that is the published altitude. We hold that 4,000 until the final approach fix, and then we can start down our, our normal final approach course. Okay, and if in this case, it's the ILS, which uh, four thousand feet would be—that's where we're going to intercept the ILS, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Right, right there, and that right we can see 4, with that that little uh, lightning bolt symbol, right? That shows us where that that intercept will be. Yeah, and then in this case, the uh, the lightning bolt, the four thousand points, right at this this radar fix, which is also has a, a, a glide slope check altitude of four thousand. So, and. This is a little beyond what we're talking about, but in some cases, that uh, final approach fix and the glide slope don't quite match up. So you have that check altitude, which might be you know maybe fifty, a hundred feet lower than your than the glide slope intercept. But this, in this case, it's right on the the numbers there, and so you'll start on down at that point. Right, and we we intercept that at the final approach fix, and then we can start on down. And I I think we've mentioned this before. You know, some ILSs you you need to make sure you do your step downs and not start down on the glide slope until you're at the final approach fix, because there are certain ones out there that'll put you below the step-down fixes. Got to be kind of careful there. So uh, there's one that comes to mind over in Chicago. Uh, so we can even discuss that one again. That's kind of an interesting one. Well, gosh, Russ, this has been pretty cool. I'm, I'm hoping that – I know you haven't done it yet, so we're not going to put too much pressure on you to, to do a little write-up on this. And uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll have <laughs> – and it doesn't have to be too exhaustive, so I don't want to kill you on it. But, but there's a couple other examples there, and I want people to look at those examples. I also – I think this has been really cool. It's a total – you know, this is uh, really geeking out on the instrument stuff. And I know that a lot of us don't fly instruments that listen, but I think this is quite interesting. Even for those people that don't fly, fly instrument procedures, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to do this in your simulator uh, at home. If uh, Even if you're a VFR pilot and you don't want to fly IFR, it, it's totally cool to go through this and say to yourself, okay, what do I need to do? How do I get down? And how do I comply with this? I, and, and for us that love our aviation geeks and geeks uh that's something that we do don't we russ 
Well, I do. <laughs> Obviously, you do, Carl. I think some of the other ones do too. It's yeah, it's it's a blast. I mean, this this is some really neat stuff. And Russ, I really appreciate your your explaining the those different altitudes, etc. I also want to hear back from listeners. Uh, and this was uh, an overview of some other. We have some other approaches that we're going to go over too, or we're going to go over. Uh, but we don't want to take too much time here. What do you think of this? I mean, what do you think of us going over some of these specific, very uh, technical? type of questions and answers that we've had from from you, actually, from you, the listener. And has this been helpful to you to do this type of thing? I really want to hear some feedback. Uh, was was this good for you as far as the way we described it, as far as the way we described the approach, et cetera? And do you want to hear more of this type of uh, instrument procedures? It's very difficult to do in an audio environment, but that's why we're going to follow up with the examples and also a blog post. So, Russ, I really appreciate that. That was really cool. Really enjoyed that. Our picks of the week. Anyway, moving on to our our next topic is uh, actually the the one that's uh, definitely for VFR folks, and that's uh, for actually not really. It's actually for everybody, really, isn't it? It's uh, our next topic is discussion of the actual <laughs> our favorite museum and why it's our favorite museum. As a matter of fact, uh, we we had a couple other topics going a little bit out of order, but one of the things we're going to do this week is instead of our picks of the week, we're going to discuss museums and uh, and the museums that are our favorite and why. Most importantly, why they're our favorite. Sometimes our favorite museum isn't necessarily the biggest and what people may think is the best. There may be a backside, another story to that museum. Uh, that makes it your favorite museum, and uh, and that's very very true uh, with the museum that's my favorite actually. But uh, I'll get to that in a second. Larry Overstreet, I'd like uh, Larry to start. I think uh, you were trying to decide between two different museums that were your favorite museum. So which which museum is your favorite, Larry? Yeah, well uh, they're all my favorite, Carl. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I live up here in Milwaukee, so I'm about an hour and a half away from uh, Whitman Field and Oshkosh and the great museum they have up there. I love to go down and visit with you in uh, Lakeland and see the museum they have there. But uh, today I thought I would mention a couple of others that are a little smaller, a little more intimate, um, not as well-traveled, but if you're in the area, they're well worth stopping in at. Um, one is the Oklahoma Museum of Flying in Bethany, Oklahoma. And I first ran into this museum when I was at the FAA in Oak City doing the uh, high-altitude chamber uh, training. And our flying club went down there and did that. And then we went over to this museum and spent a couple of hours uh, with the volunteers there. Uh, super friendly people. They've got a couple P-51s uh, you know, in flying condition, um, a B-25J that they're putting together, uh, an L-39. And then they've got a really cool replica of a Folker, a Folker sorry, um, Eindecker project, which is like this wire-braced World War I airplane um, and just a really fun place to go. Um, a second one is that I used to live in Arkansas. And so the Arkansas uh, Air and Military Museum in Fayetteville, and this is not Fayetteville XNA, the big airport. This is Fayetteville Drake Field, the small airport. Um, and uh, they have this really neat uh, World War II all wood arched hangar. Uh, and they've got a Traveler Mystery Ship. They've got a Howard DGA 11 and a DGA 18K. Uh, 18K. Um, and DGA stands for darn good airplane, I think, or something similar to that. Um, a Douglas A4 Skyhawk, a Stearman, a Stinson, just lots of fun old airplanes. Um, and again, great museum staff. It's well worth uh, you know stopping by if you're in the area. 
Well, very cool. Very cool, Larry. The, uh, I, I, and by the way, we'll have these links to these museums uh, on uh, stuckmikeavcast.com. And uh, we definitely – another thing, by the way, I want to stress uh, before we start talking about more museums is please visit those museums. And if you, you know, find the time, visit uh, and also maybe join them because those funds help keep those aircraft either flying or restored. So that would be absolutely cool. Absolutely. It's an awesome thing to do. I don't even know how many museums I'm a member of. My wife does, though. (laughs) <laughs> and she likes to remind me of how many museums we join, but it's a it's a wonderful thing though. It's it keeps keeps them flying, that's for sure. Uh, and next up is uh, Paul Greco. Paul, what is your favorite museum? I'll tell you, my favorite museum is one that I visited uh, a number of times. It's called the Stephen Udvar Hazy Center. Um, it's in Chantilly, Virginia. It's actually right on um, Dulles Airport property. So. When you're landing um, to the north, you can see the um, you can see the uh, museum over to the to the west, and it's just a it's a it's a spectacular museum. I'm a big um, I'm a big NASA geek. I'm a big space geek. Um, they used to have the space shuttle Enterprise in there a number of years ago, which is, was the one that was used for uh, aerodynamic testing and never actually flew in space. That's now over at the Intrepid, but since they retired the space shuttle fleet, now uh, Discovery is there. And uh, I, feel, I feel a very special connection to Discovery because I, I watched, I was in Florida for Discovery's final uh, launch. Back in February of 2011, I remember that because my son was only four weeks old when I went. So I had to pull out a couple of uh, favors for that one. But uh, so, but there's a lot of really great um, space memorabilia. There's a lot of Apollo era um, lunar uh, lunar EVA samples. The Enola Gay uh, B29 is there, which is an absolutely uh, incredibly historic airplane and um you feel you feel the power of that airplane when you're standing there looking at it um i'm actually looking through a book i have a, a souvenir book from there and i'm just looking through there's a uh, oh how, how could i forget the sr-71 is there right in the middle um but and a bunch of other airplanes uh the concord which another is another one of my f- favorite airplanes so um certainly one of the I think one of the greatest uh, displays of, of various aircraft that you could find. It's uh, very affordable. I don't remember the price off the top of my head, but uh, very affordable, great hours. It's right there on the airport property, so it's super easy to get to. And uh, make sure you go. Awesome. I tell you, that is a neat museum. I know a lot of people listening have been to that museum. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of being there when both of the shuttles were there. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I was there the day that they took the one out, and uh, the other one was there. So it was. Oh, how cool! Good. I have a picture of it, and uh, oh, that's neat. While we were taxiing around, just a, just a, amazing uh, and very inspirational. All things NASA are inspirational. I think. Just oh yeah, big time! Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, thanks for that, and I and I, I really love that that connection that you have to it. You also another connection. You get to see it often now that you fly there often. Oh yeah, I see it all. With yeah, your every day. Job. Yeah, every day. <laughs> oh yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Paul. Thank, thanks for that one. And sure. Tom, Tom, what is your uh, your favorite museum and why? 
Um, let's see. Actually, I picked a museum that may not necessarily be my favorite, but one that I really enjoyed. And, you know, I was listening to Paul just talk about, um, you know, like all the NASA stuff, which is just on the other coast away from me. And uh, as a kid and watching rockets go up that you can see even from the West Coast of Florida every time they launched and going over there and look at rockets, I could do that all day long. Um, I have Sun and Fun close by, as Larry mentioned, and, and have been through all of those planes. But something that I found that was really interesting that I thought I'd mention here was um, I, I had a chance to go over to London, England, and I went to the Royal Air Force Museum over there. Really, really cool stuff. And what uh, caught my attention was as, as I was walking through this museum, looking at the perspective of all of these wars that we grew up learning in history class, but from uh, the, the British perspective. You know, so I know what happened from the U.S. perspective because that's what they taught us going through school. But seeing it from their perspective and all these different uh, pieces of uh, machinery that they have, you know, from, you know, Sopwith to, to Haviland to, you know, they had a Harrier sitting on the floor. They had a Spitfire hanging from the ceiling and the significance of that and how Rolls-Royce played such a big part in, um, you know, the P-51 and how the Spitfire and the P-51 used that Rolls-Royce engine to just, you know, basically start dominating the war and it was really really cool stuff um even if you don't get the chance to go over there their website is just it's really cool to go through and just kind of look at all these aircraft that they have um both uh fixed wing and rotorcraft all the way from world war one vintage uh through to modern day interesting interesting that's 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 really cool that connection you have with it too but they uh i i love the fact that they have all these photographs and all this information about the history. And uh, I, I'm actually one of those people you can't go to a museum with because I sit there and read everything. I know, Tom, you've um, Carl, been, I was been... just going to say, I've been <laughs> fortunate enough to go to one of your uh, museums that you are a member of. And, and that was actually really cool. And it's local here. And uh, that was a very good perspective on uh, what was it called? The History of War Museum? Yeah, it's the yeah, Military yeah. History Museum. Military mil history. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And he's got some really neat equipment in there, too. It may not, not very many aircraft, but, but very, very cool for um for for those um wars he has the that replica of the bell x1 a i think it is that yep, uh, was yep. absolutely outstanding and a couple other uh aviation uh related. and he's got a howitzer in there and, god I, and, yeah, we, we stood there looking at that going oh i want one yeah. i'll drag one of those down the road with me boy that's big i remember saying that Boy, that's big, but uh, anyway, that's cool. Next person on our list is uh, Russ. What's what's your favorite museum? Oh, my my favorite museum is uh, just a, a little known small local museum in Dayton, Ohio, called the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> of course, I'm I'm joking. It's uh, it's, it's certainly not small, um, but I used to live out that way, and in fact, I worked within uh, you know half a mile probably of the museum. Could see it out my window and. Uh, and sometimes I'd go there just at lunch for 15 or 20 minutes and just kind of walk around. It was fantastic. Um, it is on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, uh, but it's free. I mean, of course, our taxes already paid for it. But even though it's on the base, there's no ID required. You don't have to be a, a military member or a dependent or anything to get in. It's got its own separate gate and all that. But the, the museum is is both huge and really well designed. I mean, it has displays and you know diorama type stuff and explanations and you know all kinds of things to read and historical documents and you know, uniforms and just all that kind of stuff. But it goes. It's obviously focused on military aviation as you'd expect. But it takes you from, I mean, pre World War One, you know, airplanes, you know, all the way up to. I think I think they have an F twenty two in there. I, I might might not be correct, but I'm pretty sure, uh, including 
rockets and missiles and space capsules and uh, bombers and just just every kind of military aircraft you can possibly imagine from World War One and two and Korea and Vietnam and everywhere in between. So it's a really neat place. Uh, their website, which will be in the show notes, uh, has something that's really really cool. It's a virtual view of the entire museum, where you can go and you get you move your mouse around and you get 360 degree views and you can zoom in. And it is literally a virtual tour of the museum. You can see just about everything in there from your computer. But still, you want to go and uh, see some of the impressive exhibits they have. They do have a, uh, they're opening up a fourth hangar. So they've got three now and they're opening up a fourth. Some of the aircraft are being moved over there. Uh, they have a schedule on their website. The aircraft they're moving over there are the, uh, the presidential aircraft, you know, the Air Force One type aircraft. Very cool. As well as uh, the experimental aircraft, which I always thought was one of the cooler parts of the exhibit. But you know, it used to be in a separate part of the, uh, the base, but now it's moving over with the main museum. And I mean, just all those crazy, you know, X planes from the, you know, the fifties and the sixties and just really, really fascinating time. You could spend, I mean, if you're ever in Dayton, set aside a day or two <laughs> of, of your time in Ohio to just to go to this museum. It's fantastic. Very, very cool. Uh, I, I tell you, I, I, Go there often, as often as I can, and it seems like every time you go, there's something new and different, but it's always, always inspiring, that's for sure, always inspiring. But uh, again, we'll have a link to that, and if you get a chance, you really, really need to go to that museum. Um, it's it's something that I, I think is is you can learn from by just going to their website too, right? I mean, it, you can learn so much about that museum and about the history of different aircraft without even visiting it. You can visit it virtually. I think it's such a cool website, and we'll definitely have that uh, in the show notes. Well, gosh, thanks for that, uh, Russ. Uh, let's see. Up next, I guess I'll go next, is uh, my favorite air museum, which is kind of a – a lot of people will think that I'm going to come up with something that everybody has heard of and uh, is known throughout uh, – the world, etc. But actually, my favorite is uh, actually the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum. And I uh, actually have been a member of the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum at Reading Regional Airport in Pennsylvania. It has, it has a real deep meaning in my life and is, uh, is really, really important to me because there's, there's a bunch of reasons. Number one, they have a World War II weekend, which is a, a reenactment with over a thousand different reenactors, and uh, I, you can go around and, and actually enjoy being back in World War II and and listening to the music and get back in the feel of of what it's like to be there during World War II. And it's right around Father's Day that they have this. And um, you know, I used to go there every so often with my dad when he was mobile, and it was just like a, a source of of you know, camaraderie and bonding with my father. So that's one of the reasons I really like it. Also, I was a volunteer at the museum many years ago, and another volunteer uh, that was there, his son uh, was my uh, chief pilot at uh, one of the flight schools that I worked for. He was killed in a plane crash, and he actually has uh, his uniform. He was a Pan Am Express pilot, and his uniform is on display. And one other really great connection for me is the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum has there has another aircraft that I actually was able to help with the restoration of a very small part uh, when it was just getting started. For some of you that know, there was a P-61B. It's a Black Widow. 
Uh, it was a night fighter. There's only four of these in existence, only four, and I actually was able to get involved with the restoration of one of them. And uh, But my role obviously was very small. I did more cleaning and helping and stuff like that but uh, and volunteering. But it was actually it was discovered uh, in New Guinea and, and a mountaintop, and they brought it back, and they've actually put it together. And there's uh, all but three of them are on permanent display at national museums. But uh, and all three are incapable of flight. This one is, and this is pretty amazing to go see this one. Uh, from what I understand, it's actually flyable, but I have to confirm that one. The uh, the other thing too about this is that it also has that whole virtual tour that you can go on a tour of the the whole museum online. So check that out, uh, Mid Atlantic Air Museum. It really has a it ha- it's it's personal to me because when I started flying, it was one of the first that I actually flew into and drove to uh, for many, many years, uh, this museum out in Reading, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was the first air museum that I actually joined. And I think that, you know, that joining an air museum is, is really, really important. And it really is something that, you know, is is, is something that you can do for, for our community. I think, uh, Larry, you actually had something you wanted to mention about that. Um, yeah, just, you know, being a, a couple of people talked tonight about being a member of a museum or volunteering in a museum. And I've, I've just found that being a member is so valuable because of one huge thing. Um, you don't feel like you have to get your money's worth every time you go through the gate. You know, it's okay to go in and spend, you know, a half an hour, an hour over lunch break and leave, you know, and come back another time and see something else. Um, I have six kids, and so when they were young, they didn't have a long attention span. And being a member of a museum is uh, just such a great way to contribute to the museum and also to be able to kind of come and take it in small bites uh, as you're able to. Yes, I, I agree. I think it's it's great with uh, any any type of museum to be able to just go there, spend some time. We do that with zoos also. We join different zoos and just like to sit there for an hour yep. or two and enjoy the, the animals. And there's always changing exhibits. You get invited to some really cool events. Uh, you can be inside that inner circle, which uh, I think is really important too. And you become part of the project, you know, by helping with your money and uh, also helping with your time. You become part of that museum and you yep. become part of that museum family. So good point, Larry. Really good point. Well, up next, uh, let's see. We have Rick Felty. Rick, uh, what is your yeah. favorite aviation? Well, it's funny because this topic was there, and I and I thought for a while, you know, I was like, well, I haven't really, you know, I, as you probably all know, people who know the show, I, I end up to flying myself late in my, you know, later in my life, and uh, and while as a kid I went to a number of things and, and did some stuff, that, you know, there's been a large gap where I haven't really been to any of the museums. I, by the way, I was also at the. Um, the STS is it 133 the discovery launch mm-hmm. um i was i i got to go to that and cool. uh which was amazing cool. and so the, but i have not been to um udvarhazy i haven't been to washington yet but of course i now have a young son who who that will be in fact i think we're going to go there in a couple of months so um there's a lot of stuff about to happen but there was this gap and i thought i don't have anything to talk about and then i remembered that a few years ago um my wife surprised me just as i was getting into aviation but, and I didn't know this place existed, but she tr- just, we drove and drove. She said, oh, I think you're going to like this. And we ended up at uh, a museum called the Collings Foundation, which is um, in Stowe, I think, Massachusetts. Um, and they have a great collection of aircraft from, 
from all over, you know, from, from all eras. And, um, and this was an event where they had their classic car collection out as well. So it was this combined thing. And it was just, it was outside. It was a bit of a reenactment in some areas of World War II. So there were, there were camps and there were, you know, there was all that stuff. And then, you know, and actually one of the pictures, one of the videos on my YouTube page is, um, is a uh, flyby of their um, uh, AT6 Texan, uh, the trainer. And just, oh, you know, that that uh, radial engine and, and the, the uh, just amazing sound. And it was just a low flyby and, um, and I was just hooked. So, so I've forgotten I'd been to that one and I, I sort of thought of it more as a bigger experience than as a museum, but of course that's what it is. So, um, so that's my pick, although I'm, I'm anxious to explore all the other ones that you guys have talked about. <laughs> awesome, Rick. That's a great story. And that's, uh, that's a great foundation. They keep, keep a lot of aircraft flying. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, you know the uh, these these are our the, our favorite museums, and I know we're we're getting a little close on time, but there is something else I wanna I wanna mention. And uh, even though we these are our picks of the week, uh, there's another kind of a small little museum, and has some old artifacts of National Airlines, and that is actually on display at a restaurant I went to with uh, Tom Frick. Tom, you and I actually went to. The Hangar Restaurant. As a matter of fact, maybe we'll even put a picture out there and we'll give a shout out to the folks at the Hangar uh, Restaurant over at Albert Witted Airport. Uh, but there's the Albert Witted uh, Preservation Society, and uh, they also have some displays and they have a pancake breakfast there at the uh, airport restaurant. And Tom, you know, we've we've been there quite a few times, haven't we? Yes, we have. You know, we got that their hamburger Wednesday going and. It's just a beautiful venue. They got a nice restaurant. You sit out on a deck on a second floor, and you can see the runways from Albert Witted. It's it's pretty. It's nice. It's a nice. Uh, nice venue. Another place you can hang out, have a beer, and start judging landings. <laughs> <laughs> just like Paul and I were were talking about with the the other restaurant that we were, we were at the uh, the Sunset Pub and Grill. Yeah. The Sunset Pub and Grill, not the Bar and Grill, which is another place you can go to. But one of the things that was really cool about the Hangar restaurant, and Tom, I, I think you remember this too, is you know that was where National Airlines got their start was at Albert Witted. And they actually have some displays. It's almost like a mini museum. And I know the Preservation Society is trying to put a museum together there. Right. Um, well, not only that, but that's also um, where the uh, first commercial flight ever happened as well. Commercial, right, to, first commercial yeah, airline to, flight. To, to, Tony Janus, yeah, yeah, in the Benoist, and then went from uh, Tampa to St. Petersburg back in, uh, what was it, January 1st, 1915. Right, wow. Uh, a little while ago, and that's uh, that was actually where they had a, a bit of a reenactment. I wasn't able to go to that, but I heard it was, was pretty interesting as far as that first flight was uh, concerned going over to the Tampa airport. And that's actually where the Tony right. Janus Award is held, is Tampa International Airport. Right. Uh, so that's it's quite interesting, but that was, was a side as a side note. That's where I got my private pilot too. Was over at uh, Albert Witted. So that was a, it's it's a neat place to have said that you got your got your private at just where the first commercial flight ever took place. Yes, that is awesome. That is really really cool, and and you know it, it's interesting that we talked about these museums because as we're thinking about it, and as I'm thinking about it, and, and the rest of us, there's so many more museums I'm sure we've been to. And and I we we should just start listing as many as we can as far as our picks of the week because I think they're all wonderful organizations and they they not only help restore the aircraft and help preserve our history, but they also do something for the next generation and they educate them. They also inspire them. 
by actually seeing people that have done this and talking to the actual people and talking to those that were part of this history, and they hear those stories, and they hear the stories through those people that were in in the wars, flew the airplanes. They may not still be with us, but they actually have their writings, they have their books, and they have their videos that are displayed at these museums. And I think that's really important because that's our legacy. That's our legacy of flight is right there at those museums. And that's how we continue this legacy is by visiting these. The After Landing Checklist. Well, guys, this has been great. I, I've really enjoyed talking about this. And I, I hope that uh, if you're listening right now and you have some ideas as far as the museums that you visited, we'd love to hear from you. You know, comment uh, in the show notes. Send us an email. Go to stuckmikeafcast.com and send us some feedback there. Uh, and also, you know, if, if you enjoyed the one part we did, the technical side, I'd like to hear back from you. Just remember that you need to get with your flight instructor and, and discuss that with your flight instructor. You know, this we don't do the all flight instructing here, and, and this is by no means uh, all-inclusive. This is, this is actually to get you interested and, and spark a little, a little fire, a little flame here, and get you back into the aircraft and, and ask your, your instructor, hey, listen, about those holds in lieu of procedure turn, you know, I have a question. Let's, let's go over those again. I hope that's what we were able to do. I hope we've inspired you to maybe go and, and take a look at those museums and get involved with the aviation legacy and also our aviation heritage. Well, folks, we really enjoyed bringing this show to you, and, and we appreciate your listening. And from all of us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, including Tom Frick, Paul Greco, Larry Overstreet, Rick Felty, and Russ Ozleski. We really appreciate you listening, and myself, Carl Valeri, we'll talk to you next episode. If you get a chance, go out, check out a museum. Think of one that you might want to join, and join it. Talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.